And welcome back, everybody, to the BitRaiders broadcast. I am your host, Brandon Repose. And uh, today's show, we are going to be talking about the Federal Reserve. We're going to be reading a section of, of a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. A second look at the Federal Reserve, fifth edition. Awesome. So this this uh, this book is a big one. It is huge. Um, the table of contents this year. What creature is this? A crash course on money. A tale of three banks. The harvest. Time travel into the future. Photographs. Like this. This is a jam packed full of information. It's about five hundred pages more. So you guys want to take a deep dive into the systems in which we all are all living by. Uh, I think this book is a, a good opportunity too. I've only dived into some aspects of the book. I haven't dived into the whole thing, um, but I've definitely taken a look. And I like this. I like like where this head is at. And I've seen ideas. I think this is like this, the beginning of a lot of ideas for some people. And uh, uh, I just came across it several months ago. Um, and I've been waiting to kind of get this on a, on a recording for you guys because uh, the Federal Reserve literally is a creature. Um, and this this book goes out to describe the creature. So. Um, before we get into this, though, I do want to say, uh, take a look at the systems in which are around us. Take a look at everything around us. Like we don't, we, most of us just go without questioning anything. You know, we go to work, we leave work, we go hang out with our girlfriends, boyfriends, you know, we, we hang out with family, we eat dinner, watch TV. Like this is some regular shit, right? But no one ever questions the money. No one ever questions anything. This is the, the rules that have been placed around us. You know, we just go like this whole pandemic stuff. You know, we're just following orders. We're good at that. So, uh, guys, let's, this, this, the Federal Reserve is a thing on its own and it is a government agency and it was passed years ago long time ago in act um and you know how politics works like you know where you got some campaign support we're funding your ideas we're funding your bills or whatever the fuck it is it's the same thing way back when so you know me and bitcoin like this bitcoin solves a lot of these issues right here and you know it's important for you guys to just kind of take a look into things start asking questions start understanding money and how this shit works uh, and see, you know, how you can take part and help people learn for themselves. But basically, I'm going to just get into this section right away. Why not? Um, let's just do it. All right. So section one, what creature is this? What is the Federal Reserve System? The answer may surprise you. It is not federal and there are no reserves. Furthermore, the Federal Reserve banks are not even banks. The key to this riddle is to be found not at the beginning of the story, but in the middle. Since this is not a textbook, we are not confined to a chronological structure. The subject matter is not a curriculum to be mastered, but a mystery to be solved. So let us start where the action is. Chapter 1. The Journey to Jekyll Island The secret meeting on Jekyll Island in Georgia at which the Federal Reserve was conceived the birth of a banking cartel to protect its members from competition, 
the strategy of how to convince Congress and the public that this cartel was an agency of the United States government. The New Jersey Railway Station was bitterly cold that night. Flurries of the year's first snow swirled around streetlights. November wind rattled roof panels above the track shed and gave a long, mournful sound among the rafters. It was approaching 10 p.m., and the station was nearly empty, except for a few passengers scurrying to board the last southbound of the day. The rail equipment was typical for that year of 1910, mostly chair chair cars that converted into sleepers with cramped upper and lower berths. For those with limited funds, coach cars were coupled to the front. They would take the brunt of the engine's noise and smoke that somehow always managed to seep through unseen cracks. A dining car was placed between the sections as a subtle barrier between the two classes of travelers. By today's standards, the environment was drab. Chairs and mattresses were hard. Services were metal or scarred wood. Colors were dark green and gray. In their hurry to board the train and escape the chill of the wind, few passengers noticed the activity at the far end of the platform. At a gate seldom used at this hour of the night was a spectacular spectacular sight. Nudged against the end rail bumper was a long car that caused those few who saw to stop and stare. Its gleaming black paint was scented with polished brass and handrails, knobs, frames, and filigrees. The shades were drawn, but through the open door, one could see mahogany paneling, velvet drapes, plush armchairs, and a well-stocked bar. Porters with white-serving coats were busying themselves with routine chores, and there was a distinct aroma of expensive cigars. Other cars in the station bore numbers on each end to distinguish them from their dual brothers, but numbers were not needed for this beauty. On the center of each side was a small plaque bearing but a single word, Aldrich. The name of Nelson Aldrich, senator from Rhode Island, was well known even in New Jersey. By 1910, he was one of the most powerful men in Washington, D.C., and his private railway car often was seen at the New York and New Jersey rail terminals during frequent trips to Wall Street. Aldrich was far more than a senator. He was considered to be a political spokesman for big business. As an investment associate of J.P. Morgan, he had extensive holdings in banking, manufacturing, and public utilities. His son-in-law was John D. Rockefeller. Junior, 60 years later, his grandson, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, would become vice president of the United States. When Aldrich arrived at the station, there was no doubt he was the commander of the private car, wearing a long, full collared coat, a silk top hat, and carrying a silver-tipped walking stick. He strode briskly down the platform with his private secretary, Shelton, and a cluster of porters behind them hauling assorted trunks and cases. No sooner had the senator boarded his car when several more passengers arrived with similar collections of luggage. The last man appeared just moments before the final all aboard. He was carrying a shotgun case. While Aldrich was easily recognized by most of the travelers who saw him stride through the station, the other faces were not familiar. These strangers had been instructed to arrive separately to avoid reporters and should they meet inside the station. To pretend they did not know each other. After boarding the train, they had been told to use first names only so not as to reveal each other's identity. As a result of these precautions, not even the private car porters and servants knew the names of these guests. Back at the main gate, there was a double blast from the engine's whistle. Suddenly, the gentle sensation of motion, the excitement of a journey begun but no sooner had the train cleared the platform when it shuddered to a stop. Then, to everyone's surprise, it reversed direction and began moving toward the station again. Had they forgotten something? Was there a problem with the engine? 
A sudden lurch and the slam of couplers gave the answer. They had picked up another car at the end of the train, possibly the mail car. In an instant, the forward motion was resumed and all thoughts returned to this trip ahead and to the minimal comforts of the accommodations. And so as the passengers drifted off to sleep to the rhythmic, the rhythmic clicking of steel wheels against rail, little did they dream that riding in that car at the end of their train were six men who represented an established one-fourth of the total wealth of the entire world. This was the roster of the Aldrich car that night. Nelson W. Aldrich, Republican, whip in the Senate, chairman of the National Monetary Commission, business associate of J.P. Morgan, father-in-law to John D. Rockefeller Jr. Two, Abraham P. Andrew, assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Three, Frank A. Vanderlip, president of the National City Bank of New York, the most powerful of the banks at that time, representing William Rockefeller and the International Investment Banking House of Cunn, Loeb, and Company. Henry P. Davidson, senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Benjamin Strong, head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And six, Paul M. Warburg, a partner in Kuhn, Loeb, and Company, a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France, and brother to Max Warburg, who had, who was head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Concentration of wealth. Central control over financial resources was far advanced by 1910. In the United States, there were two focal points of this control, the Morgan Group and the Rockefeller Group. Within each orbit was a maze of commercial banks, acceptance banks, and investment firms. In Europe, the same process had proceeded even further and no less into the Rothschild Group and the Warburg Group. An article appeared in the New York Times on May 3, 1931, commenting on the death of George Baker, one of Morgan's closest associates. It said, one-sixth of the total wealth of the world was represented by members of the Jekyll Island Club. The reference was only to... The reference was only to those in the Morgan Group. It did not include the Rockefellers or the European financiers. When all of these are combined, the previous estimate that one-fourth of the world's wealth was represented by these groups is probably conservative. In 1913, the year that the Federal Reserve Act became law, a subcommittee of the House Committee on Currency and Banking under the chairmanship of Arsenine Puho of Louisiana completed its investigation into the concentration of financial power in the United States. Puho was considered to be a spokesman for the oil interests, part of the very group under investigation, and did everything possible to sabotage the hearings. In spite of his efforts, however, the final report of the committee at large was devastating. Your committee is satisfied from the proof submitted that there is an established and well-defined identity and community of interest between a few leaders of finance, which has resulted in great and rapidly growing concentration of the control of money and credit in the hands of those few men. Under our system of issuing and distributing corporate securities, the investing public does not buy directly from the corporation. The securities travel from the issuing house through middlemen to the investor. It is only the great banks or bankers with access to the mainsprings of the concentrated resources made up of other people's money. And the banks, trust companies, and life insurance companies, and with control of the machinery for creating markets and distributing securities, who have had the power to underwrite or guarantee the sale of large-scale security issues. The men who, through their control over the funds of our railroad and industrial companies, are able to direct where such funds shall be kept, and thus to create these great reservoirs of the people's money are the ones who are in position to tap those reservoirs for the ventures in which they are interested and to prevent their being tapped for purposes which they do not approve. 
When we consider also in this concentration that these reservoirs of money and credit, there flow a large part of the reserves of the banks of the country, that they are also the agents and the correspondents of the out-of-town banks and the loaning of their surplus funds in the only public money market of the century of the country, and that a small group of men and their partners and associates have now further strengthened their hold upon the resources of these institutions by acquiring large stock holdings therein by representation on their boards and through valuable patronage, we begin to realize something of the extent to which this practical and effective domination and control over our greatest financial railroad and industrial corporations has developed largely within the past five years and that it is fraught with peril to the welfare of the country. Such was the nature of the wealth and power represented by those six men who gathered in secret that night and traveled in the luxury of Senator Aldrich's private car. Destination Jekyll Island. As the train neared its destination of, of Raleigh, North Carolina, the next afternoon it slowed and then stopped in the switching yard just outside the station terminal. Quickly, the crew threw a switch and the engine nudged the last car onto a siding where just as quickly it was uncoupled and left behind. When passengers stepped onto the platform at the terminal a few moments later, their train appeared exactly as it had been when they boarded. They could not know that their traveling companions for the night at that very instant were joining still another train, which within the hour would depart southbound once again. The elite group of financiers was embarked on an 800-mile journey that led to Atlanta, then to Savannah, and to finally to the small town of Brunswick, Georgia. It would seem that Brunswick was an unlikely destination located on the Atlantic seaboard. It was primarily a fishing village with, with a small but lively port for cotton and lumber. It had a population of only a few thousand people, but by that time, the sea islands then that sheltered the coast from South Carolina to Florida already had become popular as winter resorts for the very wealthy. One such island just off the coast of Brunswick had recently been purchased by J.P. Morgan and several of his business associates, and it was there here that they came in the fall and winter to hunt ducks or deer and to escape the rigors of cold weather in the north. It was called Jekyll Island. When the Aldrich car was uncoupled onto the siding at the small Brunswick station, it was indeed conspicuous. Word traveled quickly to the office of the town's weekly newspaper. While the group was waiting to be transferred to the dock, several people from the paper approached and began asking questions. Who were Mr. Aldrich's guests? Why were they here? Was there anything special happening? Mr. Dawson, who was one of the owners of the Jekyll Island and who was well known to the local paper, told them that these were merely personal friends and that they had come for the simple amusement of duck hunting. Satisfied that there was no real news in the event, the reporters returned to their office. Even after arrival at this remote island lodge, the, sec- the secrecy continued. For nine days, the rule for first names only remained in effect. Full-time caretakers and servants had, begin- had been given vacation, and a new carefully screened staff was brought in for the occasion. This was to ensure that none of the servants might recognize by the sight the identities of these guests. It is difficult to imagine any event in history, including preparation for war, that was shielded from public view with greater mystery and secrecy. The purpose of this journey was not to hunt ducks. Simply stated, it was to come to an agreement on the structure and operation of a banking cartel. The goal, as is true with all cartels, was to maximize profits by minimizing competition between members to make it difficult for new competitors to enter the field and to utilize the police power of government to enforce the cartel agreement. In more specific terms, it was to create a blueprint for the Federal Reserve System. The story is confirmed. For many years after the event, educators, commentators, and historians denied that Jekyll Island meeting ever took place. Even now, the accepted view is that the meeting was relatively unimportant and only paranoid, 
unsophisticates would try to make anything out of it. Ron Chernow writes, the Jekyll Island meeting would be the fountain of a thousand conspiracy theories. Little by little, however, the story has been pieced together in amazing detail and has come directly or indirectly from those who actually were there. Furthermore, if what they say about their own purposes and actions does not constitute a classic conspiracy, then there is little meaning to that word. The first leak regarding this meeting found its way to into print in 1916. It appeared in Leslie's Weekly and was written by a young financial reporter by the name of B.C. Forbes, who later founded Forbes magazine. The article was primarily in praise of Paul Warburg, and it is likely that Warburg left the story out during conversations with the writer. At any rate, the opening paragraph contained a dramatic but highly accurate summary of both the nature and purpose of the meeting. Picture a party of the nation's greatest bankers stealing out a New York on a private railroad car under the cover of darkness, stealthily handing hundreds of miles south, embarking on a mysterious launch, sneaking onto an island deserted by all but a few servants living there, a full week under such rigid secrecy that the names of not one of them was once mentioned, lest the servants learn the identity and disclose to the world the strangest and most secret expedition in the history of American finance. I am not romantic romancing. I'm giving to the world for the first time the real story of how the famous Aldrich Currency Report, the foundation of our new currency system, was written. In 1930, Paul Warburg wrote a massive book, 750 pages, 17, 1,750 pages, in the all entitled The Federal Reserve System, Its Origin and Growth. In this tome, he explained, the results of the conference were entirely confidential even the fact that there had been a meeting was not permitted to become public. Then, in a footnote, he added, through 18 years have since gone by, I do not feel free to give a description of, the most, of this most interesting conference concerning which Senator Aldrich pledged all participants to secrecy. An interesting insight to Warburg's attendance at the meeting came 34 years later in a book written by his son, James. James had been appointed by FDR as director of the budget and during World War II as head of the office of war information. In his book, he described how his father, who didn't know one end of a gun from the other, borrowed a shotgun from a friend and carried it with him to the train to disguise himself as a duck hunter. This part of the story was corroborated in the official biography of Senator Aldrich, written by Nathaniel Wright Stevenson. In the autumn of 1910, six men went out to shoot ducks. That is to say, they told the world that was their purpose. Mr. Warburg, who was of the number, gives an amusing account of his feelings when he boarded a private car in Jersey City, bringing with him all the accoutrements of a duck shooter. The joke was in the fact that he had never shot a duck in his life and had no intention of shooting any. The duck shoot was a blind. Stevenson tells us that shortly after they arrived at Brunswick, the station master entered the private car and shocked them shocked them by his apparent knowledge of the identities of everyone on board. To make matters worse, he said that reporters were waiting outside. Davison took charge. Come outside, old man, he said, and I will tell you a story. No one claims to know what story was told standing on the railroad ties that morning, but a few moments later, Davison returned with a broad smile on his face. It's all right, he said reassuringly. They won't give us away. Stevenson continues, the reporters dispersed and the secret of the strange journey was not divulged. No one asked him how he managed it, and he did not volunteer the information. In the 19, I'm sorry, in the February 9, 1935 issue of the Saturday Evening Post, an article appeared written by Frank Vanderlip, and in, in it he said, 
Despite my views about the value of society of greater publicity for the affairs of corporations, there was an occasion near the close of 1910 when I was as secretive, indeed, as furtive as any conspirator. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak out of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should not that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come one at a time and as unobtrusively as possible to the railroad railroad terminal of the on the New Jersey littoral on the Hudson, where Senator Aldrich's private car would be in readiness, attached to the near end of a train for the south. Once aboard. The private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. We addressed one another as Ben, Paul, Nelson, Abe. It is Abraham, Pia, Andrew, Davison, and I adopted even deeper disguises, abandoning our first names on the theory that we were always right. He became Wilbur and I became Orville. After those two aviation pioneers, the Wright brothers, the servants and train crew may have known the identities of one of two of us, but they did not know all. And it was the names of all printed together that would have made our mysterious journey significant in Washington, in Wall Street, even in London. Discovery, we knew, simply must not happen, or else all of our time and effort would be wasted. If it were to be exposed publicly that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. The structure was pure cartel. The composition of the Jekyll Island meeting was a classic example of cartel structure. A cartel is a group of independent businesses which join together to coordinate the production, pricing, or marketing of their members. The purpose of a cartel is to reduce competition and thereby increase profitability. This is accomplished through a shared monopoly over their industry, which forces the public to pay higher prices for their goods or services that would be otherwise required under free enterprise competition. Here were representatives of the world's leading banking Consortia, Morgan, Rockefeller, Rothschild, Warburg, and Kuhnlove. They were often competitors, and there is little doubt that there was considerable distrust between them and skillful maneuvering for favored position in any agreement. But they were driven together by one overriding desire to fight their common enemy. The enemy was competition. In 1910, the number of banks in the United States was growing at a phenomenal rate. In fact, it had more than doubled to over 20,000 in just the previous 10 years. Furthermore, most of them were springing up in the South and West, causing the New York banks to suffer a steadily decline of market share. Almost all banks in the 1880s were national banks, which means they were chartered by the federal government. Generally, they were located in the big cities and were allowed to, by law, to issue their own currency in the form of banknotes. Even as early as 1896, however, the number of non-national banks had grown to 61%, and they already had 54% of the country's total banking deposits. By 1913, when the Federal Reserve Act was passed, those numbers were 71% non-national banks holding 57% of the deposits. In the eyes of those duck hunters from New York, this was a trend that simply had to be reversed. Competition also was coming from a new trend in the industry to finance future growth out of profits rather than from borrowed capital. This was the outgrowth of free market interest rates, which set a realistic balance between debt and thrift. Rates were low enough to attract serious borrowers who were confident of the success of their business ventures and of their ability to repay, but they were high enough to discourage loans for frivolous ventures or those for which there were alternative sources of funding. 
for example, one's own capital. That balance between debt and thrift was a result of a limited money supply. Banks could create loans in excess of their actual deposits, as we shall see, but there was a limit to that process. And that limit was ultimately determined by the supply of gold they held. Consequently, between 1900 and 1910, 70% of the funding for American corporate growth was generated internally, making industry increasingly independent of the banks. Even the federal government was becoming thrifty. It had a growing stockpile of gold, was systematically redeeming the greenbacks, which had been issued during the Civil War, and was rapidly reducing the national debt. Here was another trend that had to be halted. What the bankers wanted and what many businessmen and what many businessmen wanted also was to intervene in the free market and tip the balance of interest rates down, downward to favor debt over thrift. To accomplish this, the money supply simply had to be disconnected from gold and made more plentiful, or as they described it, more elastic. The greatest threat, however, came not from rivals or private capital formation, but from the public at large in the form of what bankers call a run on the bank. This is because when banks accept a customer's deposit, they give in return a balance in his account This is the equivalent of a promise to pay back the deposit anytime he wants. Likewise, when another customer borrows money from the bank, he also is given an account balance, which usually is withdrawn immediately to satisfy the purpose of the loan. This creates a ticking time bomb because at that point, the bank has issued more promises to pay on demand than it has money in the vault. Even though the depositing customer thinks he can get his money at any time he wants, in reality, it has been given to the borrowing customer and no longer is available at the bank. The problem is compounded further by the fact that the banks are allowed to lend even more money than they have received in the deposit. The mechanism for accomplishing this seemingly impossible feat will be described in a later chapter, but is the fact of modern banking that promises, promises to pay often exceed savings deposits by a factor of 10 to 1. And because only about 3% of these accounts are actually retained in the vault in the form of cash, the rest have, having been put into even more loans and investments, the bank's promises exceed its ability to keep those promises by a factor of over 300 to 1. As long as, only one, as long as only a small percentage of depositors request their money at one time, no one is the wiser. But if a public confidence is shaken, and if more than a few percent attempt to withdraw their funds, the scheme is finally exposed. The bank cannot keep all its promises and is forced to close its doors. Bankruptcy usually follows in due course. Currency drains. The same result could happen, and prior to the Federal Reserve System, often did happen. Even without depositors making a run on the bank, instead of withdrawing their funds at the teller's window, they simply wrote checks to purchase goods or services. People's, people receiving those checks took them to the bank for deposit. If that bank happened to be the same one from which the check was drawn, then all was well, because it was not necessary to remove any real money from the vault. But if the holder of the check took it to another bank, it was quickly passed back to the issuing bank and settlement was demanded between banks. This is not a one-way street, however. While the uptown bank is demanding payment from the uptown bank, the uptown bank is also clearing checks and demanding payment from the downtown bank. As long as the money flow in both directions is equal, then everything can be handled with simple bookkeeping. But if the flow is not equal, then one of the banks will have to actually send money to the other, other to make up the difference. If the amount of money required exceeds a few percentage points of the bank's total deposits, the result is the same as they run on the bank by depositors. This this demand of money by other banks rather than by depositors is called a currency drain. In 1910, the most common cause of a bank having to declare bankruptcy due to a currency drain was that if it followed a loan policy that was more reckless than that of its competitors, more money was demanded from it because more money was loaned by it. It was dangerous enough to lend 90% of their customers' savings, keeping only $1 in reserve out of every 10 That had proven to be adequate most of the time. Some banks, however, were tempted to walk even closer to the 
precipice. I'm sorry, closer to the precipice. They published. They pushed the ratio to 92%, 95%, 99%. After all, the way a bank makes money is to collect interest. And the only way to do that is to make loans. The more loans, the better. And so there was a practice among some of the more reckless banks to loan up, as they call it, which was another way of saying to push down their reserve ratios. A banker's utopia. If all banks could be forced to issue loans in the same ratio to their reserves as other banks did, then regardless of how small that ratio was, the amount of checks to be cleared between them would balance in the long run. No major currency drains would ever occur. The entire banking industry might collapse under such a system, but not individual banks, at least not those that were part of the cartel. All would walk the same distance from the edge, regardless of how close it was. Under such uniformity, no individual bank could be blamed for failure to meet its obligations. The blame could be shifted instead of to the economy or government policy or interest rates or trade deficits or the exchange value of the dollar or even to the capitalist system itself. But in 1910, such a banker's utopia had not yet been created. If the downtown bank began to lend at a greater ratio to its reserves than its competitors, the amount of checks which would come back to to it for payment also would be greater. Thus, the bank, which pursued a more reckless lending policy, had to draw against its reserves in order to make payments to the more conservative banks. And when those funds were exhausted, it usually was forced into bankruptcy. Historian John Klein tells us that Financial panics of 1873, 1884, 1893, and 1907 were in large part of an outgrowth of reserve pyramiding and excessive deposit creation by reserve city banks. These panics were triggered by the currency drains that took place in periods of relative prosperity when banks were loaned up. In other words, the panics and resulting bank failures were caused not by negative factors in the economy, but by currency drains on the banks, which were loaned up to the point where they had practically no reserves at all. The banks did not fail because the system was weak. The system failed because the banks were weak. This was another common problem that brought these six men over a thousand miles to a tiny island off the shore of Georgia. Each was a potentially fierce competitor, but uppermost in their minds were the so-called panics and the very real 1,748 bank failures of the preceding two decades. Somehow, excuse me, somehow they had to join forces A method had to be devised to enable them to continue to make more promises to pay on demand than they could keep. To do this, they had to find a way to force all banks to walk the same distance from the edge, and when the inevitable disasters happened, to shift public blame away from themselves by making it appear to be a problem of the national economy rather than of private banking practice. The door then could be opened for the use of tax money rather than their own funds for paying off the losses. Here then were the main challenges that faced that tiny but powerful group assembled on Jekyll Island. One, how to stop the growing influence of small rival banks and to ensure that control over the nation's financial resources would remain in the hands of those present. How to make the money supply more elastic in order to reverse the trend of private capital formation and to recapture the industrial loan market. How to pull the meager reserves of the nation's banks into one large reserve so that all banks will be motivated to follow the same loan-to-deposit ratios. This would protect us, at least some of them, from currency drains and bank runs. Should this lead eventually to the collapse of the whole banking system, then how to shift the losses from the owners of the banks to the taxpayers? The cartel adopts a name. Everyone knew that the solution of all these problems was in a cartel mechanism that had been devised and already put into similar operation in Europe. As with all cartels, it had to be created by legislation and sustained by the power of government under the deception of protecting the consumer. The most important task before them, therefore, can be stated as objective number five. 
Five, how to convince Congress that the scheme was a measure to protect the public. The task was a delicate one. The American people did not like the concept of a cartel. The idea of business enterprises joining together to fix prices and prevent competition was alien to the free enterprise system. It can never be sold to the voters. But if the world cartel was not used, if the venture could be described with words which are emotionally neutral, perhaps even alluring, then half the battle would be won. The first decision, therefore, was to follow the practice adopted in Europe. Henceforth, the cartel would operate as a central bank. And even that was to be put a generic expression for purposes of public relations and legislation. They would devise a name that would avoid the word bank altogether and which would conjure the image of the federal government itself. Furthermore, to create the impression that there would be no concentration of power, they would establish regional branches of, of the cartel and make that a main selling point. Stevenson tells us Aldrich entered this discussion at Jekyll Island, an ardent convert, or I'm sorry, an ardent convert to the idea of a central bank is that his desire was to transplant the system of one of the great European banks, say the Bank of England, bodily to America. But political, political expediency required that such plans be concealed from the public. As John Kenneth Glabreth explained it, it was his Aldrich's thought to outflank the opposition by having not one central bank, but many, and the word bank would itself be avoided. With the exception of Aldrich, all of those presents were all those present were bankers, but only one was an expert on the European model of a central bank. Because of this knowledge, Paul Warburg became the dominant and guiding mind throughout all of the discussions. Even a casual per, per usual. Even a casual perusal of the literature on the creation of the Federal Reserve System is sufficient to find that he was indeed the cartel's mastermind. Galabrith says, Warburg has, with some justice, been called the father of the system. Professor Edwin Seligman, a member of the international banking family of J&W Seligman and head of the Department of Economics at Columbia University, writes that, in its fundamental features, the Federal Reserve Act is the work of Mr. Warburg more than any other man in the country. The Real Daddy Warbucks. Paul Mortz Warburg was a leading member of the investment banking firm of M.M. Warburg & Company of Hamburg, Germany, and Amsterdam, the Netherlands. He had come to the United States only nine years prior to the Jekyll Island meeting. Soon after arrival, however, and with funding provided mostly by the Rothschild Group. He and his brother Felix have been able to buy partnerships in the New York investment banking firm of Kuhn, Loeb, and Company, while continuing as partners in Warburg of Hamburg. Within 20 years, Paul would become one of the wealthiest men in America with an unchallenged domination over the country's railroad system. At this distance in history, it is difficult to appreciate the importance of this man, but some understanding may be had from the fact that the legendary character Daddy Warbucks in the comic strip Little Orphan Annie was a contemporary commentary on the presumed benevolence of Paul Warburg and his almost magic ability to accomplish good through the power of his unlimited wealth. A third brother, Max Warburg, was the financial advisor of the Kaiser who became director of the Reichenbank in Germany. This was, of course, a central bank, and it was one of the models used in the construction of the Federal Reserve System. Incidentally, a few years later, the Reichenbank would create the massive hyperinflation in Germany, which wiped out the middle class and the entire economy as well. Paul Warburg 
soon became well-known on Wall Street as a persuasive advocate for a central bank in America. Three years before the Jekyll Island meeting, he had published several pamphlets. One was entitled Defects and Needs of Our Banking System, and the other was a plan for a modified central bank. These attracted wide attention in both financial and academic circles and set the intellectual climate for all future discussions regarding banking legislation. In these treaties, Warburg complained that the American monetary system was crippled by its dependency on gold and government bonds, both of which were in limited supply. What America needed, he argued, was an elastic money supply that could be expanded and contracted to accommodate the fluctuating needs of commerce. The solution, he said, was to follow the German example whereby banks could create currency solely on the basis of commercial paper, which is a banker language for IOUs from corporations. Warburg was tireless in his efforts. He was a featured speaker before scores of influential audiences and wrote a steady stream of published articles on the subject. In March of that year, for example, the New York Times published an 11-part series written by Warburg explaining and expounding what he called the Reserve Bank of the United States. The message was plain for those who understood. Most of Warburg's writing and lecturing on this topic was eyewash for the public to cover the fact that a central bank is merely a cartel which has been legalized. Its proponents had to lay down a thick smokescreen of technical jargon focusing always on how it would supposedly benefit commerce, the public and the nation, how it would lower interest rates, provide funding for needing industrial projects and prevent panics in the economy. There was not the slightest glimmer that underneath it all was a master plan which was designed from top to bottom to serve private interests at the expense of the public. This was nevertheless the cold reality, and the more perceptive bankers were well aware of it. In an address before the American Bankers Association the following year, Aldrich laid it out for anyone who was really listening to the meaning of his words. He said, the organization proposed is not a bank, but a cooperative union of all the banks of the country for definite purposes, precisely a union of banks. Two years later, in a speech before the same group of bankers, A. Barton Hepburn of Chase National Bank was even more candid. He said, the measure recognizes and adopts the principles of a central bank. Indeed, if it works out as the sponsors of the law hope, it will make make all incorporated banks together joint owners of a central dominating power. And that is about as good as definition of a cartel as one is likely to find. In 1914, one year after the Federal Reserve Act was passed into law, Senator Aldrich could afford to be less guarded in his remarks. In an article published in July of that year in a magazine called The Independent, he boasted, before the passage of this act, the New York bankers could only dominate the reserves in New York. Now we are able to dominate the bank reserves of the entire country. Myth accepted as history. The accepted version of history and is... I'm sorry. The accepted version of history is that the Federal Reserve was created to stabilize our economy. One of the most widely used textbooks on this subject says it sprang from the panic of 1907 with its alarming epidemic of bank failures. The country was fed up once and for all with the arcany. I'm sorry. The. I'm sorry. Once and for all with the anarchy of unstable private banking. Even the most native student must sense a grave contradiction between the cherished view of the system's actual performance. Since its inception, it has presided over the crashes of 1921 and 1929, the Great Depression of 29 to 39, recessions in 53, 57, 69, 75, and 81, a stock market Black Monday in 87, and a 1,000% inflation, inflation which has destroyed 90% of the dollar's purchasing power. Let us be more specific. On that last point, by 1990, an annual income of $10,000 was required to buy what took only $1,000 in 1914. 
That incredible loss in value was quietly transferred to the federal government in the form of hidden taxation and the Federal Reserve System was the mechanism by which it was accomplished. Actions have consequences. The consequences of wealth confiscation by the Federal Reserve mechanism are now upon us. In the current decade, corporate debt is soaring. Personal debt is greater than ever. Both business and personal bankruptcy are at an all-time high. Banks and savings and loan associations alone, I'm sorry, and loan associations are failing in larger numbers than ever before. Interest on the national debt is consuming more than half of our personal income tax. Heavy industry largely has been placed by overseas competitors. We are facing an international trade deficit for the first time in our history. 75, 75% of downtown Los Angeles and other metropolitan areas is owned by foreigners, and the nation is in an economic recession. Now, this was obviously written several years ago. All right, let me... Uh, Keep going. First reason to abolish the system. That is the scorecard 80 years after the Federal Reserve was created supposedly to stabilize our economy. There can be no argument that the system has failed in its stated objectives. Furthermore, after all this time, after repeated changes in personnel, after operating under both political parties, after numerous experiments in monetary philosophy, after almost 100 revisions to its charter, and after the development of countless new formulas and techniques, there has been more than ample opportunity to work out mere procedural flaws. It is not unreasonable to conclude, therefore, that the system has failed, not because it needs a new set of rules or more intelligent directors, but because it is incapable of achieving its stated objectives. It's an institution. If an institution is incapable of achieving its objectives, there is no reason to preserve it, unless it can be altered in some way to change its capability. That leads to the question, why is the system incapable of achieving its stated objectives? The painful answer is those were never its true objectives. When one realizes the circumstances under which it was created, when one contemplates the identities of those who authored it, and when one studies its actual performance over the years, it becomes obvious that the system is a merely a cartel with a government facade. There is no doubt that those who run it are motivated to maintain full employment, high productivity, low inflation, and a generally sound economy. They are not interested in killing the goose that lays such beautiful golden eggs. But when there is conflict between the public interest and the private needs of the cartel, a conflict that arises almost daily, the public will be sacrificed. That is the nature of the beast. It is foolish to expect a cartel to act in any other way. This view is not encouraged by establishment institutions and the publishers. It has become their apparent mission to convince the American people that the system is not intrinsically flawed. It merely has been in the hands of bumbling oafs. For example, William Greeter was a former assistant managing editor for the Washington Post. His book, Secrets of the Temple, were published in 1987 by Simon and Schuster. It was critical of the Federal Reserve because of its fa- it was critical of the Federal Reserve because of its failures. But according to Greider, these were not caused by any defect in the system itself, but were merely the result of economic factors which are so complicated that the good men who have struggled to make the system work just haven't been able to figure it out. But don't worry, folks, they're working on it. This is exactly the kind of powder puff criticism which is acceptable in our mainstream media. Yet Greider's own research points to an entirely different interpretation. Speaking of the system's origin, he says, As new companies prospered without Wall Street, so did the new regional banks that handled their funds. New York's concentrated share of bank deposits was still huge, about half the nation's total, but it was declining steadily. Wall Street was still the biggest kid on the block, but less and less able to bully the others. This trend was a crucial fact of history, a misunderstood reality that completely alters the political meaning of the reform legislation that created the Federal Reserve. 
At the time, the conventional wisdom in Congress, widely shared and sincerely opposed, exposed by progressive reformers, was that a government institution would finally harness the money trust, disarm its powers, and establish broad democratic control over money and credit. The results were nearly the opposite. The money reforms enacted in 1913, in fact, helped to preserve the status quo to stabilize the old order. Money central, money center bankers would not only gain dominance over the new central bank, but would also enjoy new insulation against instability and their own decline. Once the Fed was in operation, the steady diffusion of financial power halted. Wall Street maintained its dominant position and even enhanced it. Anthony Sutton, former research fellow at the Hoover Institution of War, Revolution, and Peace, and also former professor of economics at California State University, Los Angeles, provides a somewhat deeper analysis. He writes, Warburg's revolutionary plan to get American society to go to work for Wall Street was astonishingly astonishingly simple. Even today, academic theoreticians cover their back, back... Excuse me. Academic theoreticians cover their blackboards with meaningless equations, and the general public struggles in bewildered confusion with inflation and the coming credit collapse, while the quite simple explanation of the problem goes undiscussed and almost entirely uncomprehended. The Federal Reserve System is a legal private monopoly of the money supply operated for the benefit of the few under the guise of protecting and promoting the public interest. The real, in, the real significance of the journey to Jekyll Island and the creature that was hatched there has inadvertently summarized by the words of Paul Warburg's admiring biographer, Harold Keller. Paul M. Warburg is probably the mildest mannered man that ever personally conducted a revolution. It was a bloodless revolution. He did not attempt to rouse the, the populace to arms. He stepped forth armed simply with an idea, and he conquered. That's the amazing thing. A, a shy, sensitive man, he imposed his idea on a nation of 100 million people. Summary. The basic plan for the Federal Reserve System was drafted at a secret meeting held in November of 1910 at the private resort of J.P. Morgan on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. Those who attended represented the great financial institutions of Wall Street and indirectly Europe as well. The reason for secrecy was simple. Had it been known that rival factions of the banking community had joined together, the public would not I'm sorry, the public would have been alerted to the possibility that the bankers were plotting an agreement in restraint of trade which of course is exactly what they were doing. What emerged was a cartel agreement with five objectives. Stop the growing of competition, stop the growing competition from the nation's newer banks, obtain a franchise to create money out of nothing for the purpose of lending, get control of the reserves of all banks so that the more reckless ones would not be exposed to currency drains and bank runs, get the taxpayer to pick up the cartel's inevitable losses and convince Congress that the purpose was to protect the public. It was realized that the bankers would have to become partners with the politicians and that the structure of the cartel would have to be a central bank. The record shows that the Fed has failed to achieve its stated objectives. That is because those were never its true goals. As a banking cartel, and in the terms of five objectives stated above it, has been unqualified success. And that finishes up chapter one. So just a little background into the history of the Federal Reserve. Um, and we, we, we had talked about fractional reserve banking, um, but guys, this stuff is, uh, I mean, this is over, what is it? 2021 now, this is, this is over a hundred years ago that the fed became enacted in Congress. Right. And I mean, the top guys, if you, if you guys look around 
you guys can see it happening right now, right? Uh, back when GameStop had its explosion to the moon, uh, the hedge fund that was shorting GameStop fucking lost all its money, right? They they ended up getting uh, they they went bankrupt. They have no money. They lost all their people's money, and then here comes a little bailout to protect uh, these banks so that they don't have to overcome, you know, they don't have to deal with it. So, I mean, this happened in 2008 with the financial crash um, and all the other times before it. Um, Ray Dalio talks about long-term debt cycles and short-term debt cycles. You know, this, if you guys take a deeper look into everything, this, this, this game is not slick. It's, it's just, you know, it's the whole world literally watches them. And we're, I just relate everything back to Bitcoin. So instead of commenting and fighting and arguing about how the issues of the current system relate to us and, you know, how we can fix it, what do we got to do? I mean, there's only one simple solution and it goes without yelling. It goes without fighting. It goes without shooting. It goes without, it goes without, it's all you got to do is buy Bitcoin. That is simply your solution. They have a money system that is backed by nothing that, you know, they can do whatever they want. It's time to slowly take the power out of their hands. And if you start to do that, I'm telling you, buying Bitcoin, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of value come this way because not a lot of people know this. And this is, this is a, a money system that affects hundreds of millions of people. And if you, if you, so for me, like I believe everything is energy, right? If you have a lot of money, it's because you help a lot of people. If you, you know, if you got shit coming to you, it's because you know you're bringing that value to the marketplace. That comes with hard work. That comes with study. That comes with practice. That comes with you know diligence. That comes with persistence. That comes with consistency. Like those ideas right there, on a free market, you know the value goes where it should go. And uh, currently, the banking system is set up to where. We are able, I mean, not we, but they are able to pay for whatever they want. They can fund whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. They can go anywhere. They can shut the people up that they need to shut up. Um, you know, it's, it's lawless. But for everyone else, we live by laws. Um, so get you some Bitcoin so you can start fucking enacting the laws. One of my favorite video, excuse me, one of my favorite videos I've seen is Max Kaiser. And he, uh, He's on camera ripping up a dollar bill, ten dollar bill, whatever it is, fifty dollar bill. And he's he 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 just mentions he said, get you some Bitcoin. If you don't have Bitcoin, you're going to be impoverished. You're going to be on the streets. You're going to be poor. Uh, if you don't realize that, you, if you don't realize that, you're going to be fucked. Essentially, um, he was also saying that he who has the Bitcoin makes the laws. Fuck the <laughs> guys, buy some Bitcoin. My my thoughts and ideas are kind of kind of all over the place right now, but this all relates back to Bitcoin. I think I'm going to do more pieces on the Federal Reserve. Um, but this right here was just a, this is just a plan, a plan that got enacted through the government systems at the time. And uh, very rich and powerful people were able to come up with a, uh, a plan. But as you guys know, as the bit raiders know, we, uh, we, uh, the power by uh, buying some Bitcoin. All you got to do is dollar cost average every month. 
get some in a wallet. I got mine, got mine in a digital wallet. I also have some in a custodian, earning interest. And uh, well, let's say the government's starting to get their sticky hands on it. I'm gonna have to send it over to the digital to my wallet and not let them get a piece of it. So uh, they can't come into my house and rob me of it. I just tell them I forgot. And if they ask, if they let's say they come across this podcast and they ask me, I'd be like, dude, it's for entertainment purposes. Blah blah this, blah blah that. I'm giving away my secret sauce. You guys know the vibes. All right, guys. Um, I'm probably gonna end this here. Uh, I just wanted to read that quick though. Get you started on the to understand the Federal Reserve. I didn't go too much about. I mean, I. It's, this is a deep book. So there's so many more concepts and ideas that you want to go uh, get into here. It talks about the history of money, like crash course on money, why it's so important, how the Federal Reserve... Guys, this shit is crazy. You guys, guys got to keep looking into this stuff. Um, and uh, I'll keep sharing too, of course. I want to help you guys learn this stuff. I want you guys to put the pieces together. And I want you guys to realize how much value Bitcoin brings to the world around you. Like, And... I, I, investing, like let's say you're investing in the stock market, you're you're essentially value investing, right? Which companies do you think are going to provide the most to to its market, right? You buy some Apple, you buy some Facebook because they got an, an insane amount of market share, right? They can touch so many people, different people in the market. Bitcoin is on a whole nother level. This everyone uses money. Humans express themselves through financial language, right? If I need something done. Let's talk money. How can I get you to do this for some money? It's the best language. It's the best communicating tool. And it's literally now a digital messaging system. That's what Bitcoin is. It's a messaging app. It's, it's fucking, it's about to change the world. Um, and you guys got to get you some. So yeah, so that's, that's this week. Um, tune in next week. I'm going to play a piece on my story a little bit to let you guys know like why I got started this broadcast and the bit raiders stuff, but uh, that's coming in good time. And uh, we're just going to keep looking into the money system, trying to leverage how Bitcoin can help us uh, value, just seeing the value in it and, uh, you know, keep raiding the markets, keep making some money, keep uh, preserving your economic energy. All right, guys, that's it. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, weekly report out this Wednesday, of course. Buy some Bitcoin, of course. If you have questions, hit me up. Check out our Telegram group chat. We talk Bitcoin finance, money systems. We talk government. We talk bullshit. We talk this. We talk that. Come into the group chat. It's welcome. It's it's free. It's open to everybody. Uh, um, and yeah, thanks, guys. Have a good one.